Greetings, fellow travelers, vagrants, explorers, wildlanders, and welcome to episode 43 of the Retro Wildlands. My name is Nomad, and this is my gaming podcast where I like to share my thoughts and experiences with a video game that I have discovered or rediscovered while roaming the gaming wildlands. Thank you very much for tuning into the show today. I am glad to have you with us. It's always a pleasure having company on our expeditions into the wildlands, so whether this is your first journey with us or you've traveled with us before, prepare yourself for an adventure. Dee Dee, our canine expedition leader, will be making the usual rounds to get you settled in. By sniffing your leg profusely, all while making awkward eye contact. Just keep still, let it happen, and be sure to give our boy a nice scratch behind the ears when he's through. While Dee Dee's methods are a little unorthodox, I suggest you follow his lead to the letter. Because where we're going today is somewhere dark and dangerous. We're going to need to keep our wits about us if we're going to make it out in one piece, especially because where we're going has a tendency to flip things on its head. (laughs) On today's episode, we're going to be checking out a video game that many of you listening probably consider to be one of the best video games of all time. It's a game that is mostly credited for establishing the Metroidvania style of games as we know them today, but it's also a game that refused to be anything but what it set out to be. In a time where 3D games were being developed and published left and right thanks to new hardware like the Sony PlayStation, this particular game had no desire to be pushed in that direction. It showed people that 2D gaming was indeed still alive and thriving. I, of course, am talking about a little game called Castlevania Symphony of the Night. For me personally, the Castlevania series was one that I missed out on growing up and never had a desire to try out as I got older, even though I could tell Castlevania was pretty gnarly looking. Back on the original Nintendo, it was touted as a dark fantasy action-adventure-style platformer. You get to play as a demon slayer taking on all manner of dark creatures, so what was there not to love? But it wasn't until I started this podcast that I gave the original Castlevania on the NES a try, and then a little later, I played Castlevania 3. Even though I only had these two Castlevania titles under my belt, I immediately saw what it was that this series had to offer, and I found myself itching for more. While I was reading up on the game series about a month or so ago, I remembered that there was a Castlevania animated series on Netflix that ended in 2021. I started watching it and was immediately hooked on it. And by playing the two games I had so recently, it helped to immerse myself into the show a bit more. I'm almost done with the third season as I record this, and I am looking forward to what's next, especially the recently announced animated show, Castlevania Nocturne. So, all of that said, it was time for me to take on the next game in the Castlevania series. I decided to go with Symphony of the Night this time, and that was largely due to Curtis over on our Retro Wildlands Facebook page. He had recommended this one to me quite a while back, and instead of doing extensive research into what game came next chronologically and all that stuff, I just decided to dive headfirst into Symphony of the Night. And holy crap, what a journey I had. 
Over the course of a few days, I put about 12 hours into Symphony of the Night, saw two of its endings, and uncovered about 189% of its two maps. While there's certainly more to experience, I felt pretty content after the credits began to roll. I started to think to myself, was Castlevania Symphony of the Night the amazing game that everyone says it is? Would I ever play it again? And just where the hell was that one relic that I somehow missed? Well, get settled in, my friends. I'm going to answer most of these questions on the show today as the Wildlands Expedition ventures deep into Dracula's castle. Now, if you're new to the show, I like to kick things off by chatting it up with you all for a little bit and giving you all a peek behind the scenes here in the Retro Wildlands before getting into the episode itself. Depending on what's on my mind, I like to talk about things that are going on with the podcast itself, what games I might be playing, what's going on in my personal life, any projects that I'm working on, and whatever else I feel like babbling about. I'll also read and respond to any comments I received when I put a call out for them on our social media. Now, if none of this sounds interesting to you and you're just here for my thoughts on Symphony of the Night, you can just skip ahead about 7 to 10 minutes and you should get to the heart of the episode. 7 to 10 minutes is just an estimate, but if you want to know exactly where you need to go, check out the show notes where I should have loaded timestamps that you can use to navigate yourself around. But feel free to stick around. It's always great to check in with you all and talk about some games and other things with you, so without further delay, let's get right into it. This is our opening segment that I like to call Campfire Ketchup. So things around the Retro Wildlands remain as busy as ever, though I feel like it's becoming harder and harder to really dig into some of the projects that I want to work on. I blame this mostly on my adult job as it's becoming much busier again, and I find when I come home from work, I am completely drained and have very little energy to do much of anything else. But when I'm not spending time with my family or doing things around the home, my mind is always on the wildlands and the next thing that I want to create. While I enjoy making these podcasts and have absolutely no intentions of stopping this train anytime soon, I keep feeling a pull to dip my toes into the YouTube waters. While I've been putting our backlog of podcast episodes up on our YouTube channel, I keep thinking about all the games that I want to do video reviews on or a couple retrospectives that I have in mind. I have three video reviews up on the channel right now, my very first video review on Parasite E for the PlayStation, and then I have one on an indie gem that I just discovered called Thy Sword, and I just posted a video review on a newer Sega Genesis game called Arcagus Revolution. The video reviews aren't too bad to put together, and the script writing isn't nearly as demanding as a podcast episode, since I'm trying to keep video reviews around the 12 to 15 minute mark. The Arcagus Revolution review is the first time I actually put myself on camera, and I think it turned out okay, so if you're interested, you should definitely check it out. The game itself was extremely fun to play, and I don't think many people really know about it. 
This game is from Mega Cat Studios, the game studio that helped make the brand new game WrestleQuest, if you've heard of that one. You'll also get a peek at my game collection behind me as well if you check out the video, so head on over to YouTube if you want to see what I've made so far. I'd be genuinely interested in your feedback. In other news, I've also been networking with other gaming podcasts over the last month or so, and I'm slated to appear as a guest on two shows coming up here soon. I'll be recording those either in the next few days, or I'll have already recorded them, depending on when this episode actually goes live and you're hearing my words. I continue to be humbled by those who have asked me onto their shows. It's humbling when I think that there are others out there that can find value in what I do, so when these shows ultimately drop and I can tell you about them, I hope you give them as much attention as you give the Retro Wildlands. These people that I've been working with are some genuinely awesome souls. So that said, keep an eye out on our social media platforms for those show announcements and much more. Just a really quick plug on social media, you can find us, the Retro Wildlands, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, slash X, Threads, and YouTube. Just search at Retro Wildlands on all of these platforms, or you can go to our link tree at linktr.ee forward slash Retro Wildlands and find us all in one place if you are at all interested. Beyond dreaming about making video reviews and being on other podcasts, I've been playing a decent amount of games, though I'm trying to trim that down a little bit and just commit to no more than two, or at most three at a time if I can help it. Since our last catch-up, I've been playing through Final Fantasy VI for the first time. I'm playing through the Pixel Remaster version, and I'm to a point where the quote-unquote major event has happened, and I'm roaming the game map gathering up allies. That's all I want to say if you've never played the game before, but those of you that have played the game should know right about where I'm at. I continue to have a fantastic time with this game, though I think my only complaint is that it seems like all the major character development is waiting until the third act to really dig itself into me. With the exception of Terra, Locke, and perhaps Edgar and Sabin, I'm not too attached to the characters yet. Still, I'm having an absolute blast, and it's very clear to see why this game is as amazing as everybody says and I am glad that I am finally giving it a chance. By the time this podcast goes live, I can almost guarantee that I'll be back playing Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Shredder's Revenge on my Switch. The Dimension Shellshock DLC is dropping on August 31st, and I cannot wait to pump more time into this game. The DLC is going to have two new playable characters, Usagi Ujimbo, the Rabbit Ronin, and then the anti-hero Karai, and they both look awesome to play as. There's also a new survival mode, new color palettes to unlock for your characters, and some brand new music too. Shredder's Revenge is the best Ninja Turtles game that I have ever played, period. And while it's a newer game and not really considered retro by definition, it is heavily retro-inspired, taking cues from older Turtles games like Turtles in Time on the Super Nintendo, for instance. If you are a fan of the Ninja Turtles, a fan of beat-em-up style games, or you just like playing good games, I highly recommend this one. 
I've also been playing through a retro-inspired game on my Switch called Battle Axe. I can't remember if I've ever mentioned this one on the show before, but it is a top-down hack-and-slash arcade-style adventure that is very reminiscent of an old arcade game. Graphics are also retro-inspired, and it is a fantastic challenge for anyone who likes these kind of games or is just looking for something quick to get into. It also has an infinite mode where you can keep slicing and dicing until you perish, which has been a fantastic time as well. This game should be on all major consoles, not just for the Switch, so if you're curious, you should look this one up. It is not my favorite game ever, and it has some flaws here and there, but if you're up for a hearty challenge and you love to chase a high score, this one might be for you. If I have my way, this is going to be the next game that I put on our YouTube channel and do a full-on video review, so be on the lookout for that. The last game I wanted to mention was another indie gem that I found called Hunt Down. This is a game released back in 2020, and while I'm playing it on my Switch, it's out on the PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and it's even on mobile. It's a platforming run-and-gun shooter that's also heavily 16-bit retro-inspired. The theme of this game is pretty much a 1980s-style cyberpunk sort of adventure. You are a bounty hunter trying to bag some of the baddest criminals in the city, and you have to fight your way through levels of goons and thugs to get your bounty. The gameplay here is extremely tight. The challenge is just about right, but the presentation is top-notch. If you're a fan of this genre or consider yourself a fan of 80s pop culture, you owe it to yourself to check this game out. I've been completing a level here and there, and there are so many of them. Eventually, I'll commit to this one and give it a proper video review. But right now, it's the perfect game to pick up and play on the Switch, so I highly recommend checking this one out too. There's a couple other games that I've been poking around with, but I'll leave those for later episodes. I want to commit to finishing Final Fantasy VI so I can do a podcast episode on it, and I want to finish up Battle Axe so I can make that my next video review. I just need to make the time to commit to them so I can make a podcast episode and a video review that'll do these games some justice. No half-assing out here in the wildlands, my friends. While it makes for slower content output, I have to stand by my golden rule. No content gets posted until I'm proud of it. And, on that note, I just wanted to say, I have not had a single person give me grief for this. While I still want to eventually get to a point where I'm able to churn out content on a regular schedule again, everyone that has reached out to me personally has been nothing but supportive of my decision to post content when it makes sense to. It's something that genuinely bothers me because I want to keep giving you all something to listen to with a level of consistency again, but you all have been just absolutely wonderful about understanding my current limitations by giving me kind words and encouragement. And I cannot be more grateful to all of you. Alright, and with that, I think it's time I stop rambling and we get to the reason that you're all here today. It's time to start talking about Castlevania Symphony of the Night. Nicholas over on our Retro Wildlands Facebook page chimed in about this game and had an interesting question. He asked, What is the most ridiculous headgear in the game? 
This might be an odd answer, Nicholas, but for me, one of the weirdest pieces of headgear I found was the leather hat. The leather hat, I feel, is like the most basic of RPG headgears. And while it barely gives any stat boosts, I just can't imagine Alucard, son of Dracula, wearing this thing even if he absolutely needed that plus two boost to defense. There's plenty of other items that just perfectly fit into this world much better than a tattered cap does. But, to really answer your question, if I had to choose one piece of headgear that I found the most ridiculous, it would be the sunglasses. All the description says is, cool looking sunglasses. <laughs> just ridiculous. Anyway, thank you for writing into the show, my friend, I appreciate it. Curtis also chimed in over on our Facebook page and said, I'll always remember, when I was younger, playing this game for the second time. I had already beaten the game, but I unlocked the code for the luck run at the end of my first playthrough. I tried it and noticed how hard it was, as the trade-off for the massive boost to your luck was a serious drop in all of your other stats. I remember looking for tips online and finding the Alucard glitch that lets you skip the first major encounter and keep the Alucard equipment for the entire game. Afterwards, I rampaged through the game using the shield rod to literally run through enemies with the Alucard shield and enjoying the greatly increased drop rate of rare items right up to when a Chrysogrim dropped and then I rampaged twice as hard. When I first read your comment, Curtis, it was before I had finished my first run through of this game, and I was almost taken aback by it. Luck run? What the hell was that? Alucard glitch? There's a way to keep your starting equipment? But I really got excited when you talked about the shield rod and the Alucard shield combo. That just reaffirmed for me how replayable this game is, because there are so many different equipment combinations and styles of play. I took the time to look up the luck run and the Alucard glitch that you'd mentioned, and without giving too much away, it really made me want to go back and boot this game up and experience this game in these unique ways. When you find your stride and you're slaying monsters left and right and uncovering the secrets of the castle, it's not hard to have a smile on your face. Without giving the whole podcast episode away, I will say... I think I know why you love this game so much, my friend, because I see a lot of the things that excite you in it. Thanks again for writing into the show, and thank you for the solid recommendation. Inner Demons, the Ghost Rider podcast, hit us up over on our Twitter slash X page and said, This game is truly special, but I didn't always see it that way. As a fan of the original NES games, I was reluctant to accept this new hero at first. He looked, acted differently than my favorite Belmonts, and had no whip. Blasphemy! Years later, I know this game is a masterpiece. I have to admit, when I first booted up this game, I was a little trepidatious myself. I had only two Castlevania games under my belt up to this point, but I was already used to playing as a Belmont and using that whip. But somehow, they made Alucard and his sword feel very natural, and I took to it very quickly. I may even prefer it over the whip, not gonna lie. This game is truly something special, and while I don't think it's an absolute masterpiece in every sense, 
it deserves one of the top spots in all of retro gaming, that is for damn sure. Thanks for reaching out to the show and submitting a comment, my friend. I really do appreciate it. Speaking of Belmonts, the Mad Belmont reached out to the show on our Twitter slash X page and said, My favorite video game ever made. I cannot name a game that I've played more than this game, and it's because the replay value for it is off the charts. The gameplay, music, level design, and even the storytelling are out of this world, and this game made me the gamer I am today. I love that you love this game so much, Belmont, and I hope I do it justice on the show today. While I agree with you on all points, I think it's the replay value that really stuck for me, personally. The amount of items and weapons you can find really changes up how you can play this game, and because there are so many options when it comes to equipment, spells, and familiars, I can see going through the game a second time and rolling with completely new tactics. Games where you can get a whole new experience just by making subtle changes like that are truly special, and it's easy to see with Symphony of the Night. I appreciate you taking the time to share your story with us today, Belmont. Thank you very much. And our final listener comment comes from Mary Eileen Erda, who reached out and shared an awesome story about Symphony of the Night on our Instagram page. She said, The whole game is a great memory. From being a little girl and watching your big brothers play, the utter heartache when I saw evil Richter in the Coliseum, getting older and having the courage to play the game myself, blowing my cousin's mind, she didn't know you could manipulate the now loading screen, it helped spark my love for mythology and art because the whole game is art. I have a husband who built me a Raspberry Pi so that I could play. And I have small nephews in awe that I beat it. I will ask them, what is a man? And they can answer. It was always more than just a video game. I absolutely love this, Mary, and thank you very much for sharing. It's very clear this game is tied to some amazing memories for you. There's plenty of games that I played when I was little where I remember seeing those specific moments that shook me a little, or games I played with family that really stuck with me over the years. I love that this game transcended the generations and part of your family got to experience it like you describe. It's awesome that you yourself got to replay it after a period of time too. Stories like these are why I love this hobby so much, because while it is just a game, It has a way to connect us on so many levels. And more than anything, I love that your nephews know that a man is nothing more than a miserable pile of secrets. Originally released on March 20th, 1997 on the Sony PlayStation, Castlevania Symphony of the Night takes place canonically four years after Castlevania Rondo of Blood. Richter Belmont defeated Dracula and saw his castle destroyed. After the events of Rondo of Blood, Richter goes missing and Dracula's castle has reappeared yet again. Dracula's son, Alucard, had previously committed himself to an eternal slumber in hopes of ridding the world of his cursed bloodline. However, he was awoken and immediately sensed the evil that is enveloping his homeland. 
Knowing what must be done, Alucard sets off towards Dracula's castle, as the time has come again for good to do battle with evil. There is no telling who will come out the victor, but that's where we come in, dear listener. Alucard, while resourceful and powerful, cannot win this battle alone. So let's gear up, Wildlanders. Grab your sword, don your vampiric cape, and prepare for battle. There's something not quite right in Dracula's castle, and it's going to be up to us to see through the illusion. Or we may find our journey coming to an abrupt end. When it comes to things like movies, books, and video games, it's easy for certain titles to rise to the top as those that we must experience. For movies, it tends to be films like The Shawshank Redemption, Pulp Fiction, and Fight Club. For books, it tends to be novels like 1984 by George Orwell, The Call of the Wild by Jack London, and The Art of War by Sun Tzu. For video games, the must-experience games that I'm told I need to play are games like Super Mario 64, The Legend of Zelda Link to the Past, and Castlevania Symphony of the Night. So when it comes to these quote-unquote must-experience pieces of media, what is it about them that makes them something that we have to experience? Is it a life lesson that's so perfectly relayed that we can't possibly have a fulfilling existence without hearing it? Is it a touching story that restores your faith in humanity and reminds you why we should be kind to others? Or maybe it's just an experience that makes you feel amazing when you're done with it, and that's all there is to it. Obviously, it could be a number of things, and those things can matter to varying degrees depending on the person and how it was the thing was introduced to the person and potentially when. It's certainly fun to think about. But when it comes to video games, I've been playing games since I was little and over the course of 30 plus years. It's impossible to go through it all and not hear about some must-play experiences. Symphony of the Night is a game that I've been told I need to play since the early 2000s. It garnered such high praise as being revolutionary, one of a kind for the time, and just an amazing experience overall. But when I asked why, I was met with varying reasons, and most of them were pretty vague. The graphics are the best on the PlayStation. The gameplay experience and exploration was masterful. The music does a great job of getting you into the experience. The story is top-notch. It has RPG elements. And while all of that sounds wonderful, no one person could ever make a case for why I had to drop everything I was doing in order to experience this game. 
And while that's not a knock on my pals or anyone who's recommended this to me before, I think that sort of speaks to this game as a whole. I think the love people have for Symphony of the Night is almost the love that you have for a spouse. When you ask them why they love that person, sometimes the answer is, I can't put it into words, this person just completes me. And after playing through this game, I think I understand why it's so high on people's lists of favorites. I can especially see why someone would fall in love with this title over 25 years ago. Not to spoil the entirety of the episode, but to kind of summarize it for me now, if someone asked me if I liked this game, I would certainly tell them yes. I had a great time with this game, despite some flaws that I experienced. But if I had to nail down exactly why I would tell someone they absolutely had to play this game, I don't think I could. At least not completely. There are certain aspects of this game that I think are absolutely wonderful, but then there's certain things about this game where I feel kinda, eh, meh about. There is something special here though, and today, I want to do my best and try to spell out what I think this is, and why I think you should go back to this game if it's been a while, or pick it up for the very first time if you've never experienced it. Now, in order for me to even begin with trying to articulate how I feel about this game, we're going to have to peel back some of the layers and figure out exactly what it is that we're working with. So, what is this game? Castlevania Symphony of the Night is a single-player action platformer that is also described as a Metroidvania. This game is widely considered to be the grandfather of Metroidvanias. For those not familiar with the term, a Metroidvania-style game is one where the game is usually home to a wide-open, non-linear area that the player can explore, however certain places within the game world are blocked off. Only until you find the right piece of equipment or gain the right ability can you continue to progress into new territories. If it's not evident, the term is a combination of the games Metroid and Castlevania. Metroid on the original NES was one of, if not the first video game, to establish the basic principles of a non-linear platformer, giving players mostly free reign over the game world right from the get-go. Super Metroid on the Super Nintendo arguably perfected this approach to gameplay. Castlevania Symphony of the Night took this formula and added RPG elements and other ways a character can develop and get stronger, outside of the idea of just finding the next key item to progress. As the Castlevania series grew and newer games came out, it kept improving upon these ideas and refining them. And thus, the term Metroidvania emerged. Metroidvania-style games are still very popular today, and games in the genre are being released all the time, especially from indie game developers. Some of the ones I know and some that I want to play someday include titles like Hollow Knight, Bloodstained Ritual of the Night, Guacamelee, Dead Cells, Cave Story, and many, many more. 
Symphony of the Night was one of the originals, and while I'm sure newer Metroidvania games executed this style of game better, or thought through some quality of life improvements that I would have loved to see in this game, the genre had to start somewhere. Speaking of starting somewhere, the one place I want to start when it comes to talking about this game is its presentation. This game is absolutely beautiful. While many developers were busy leveraging the newer hardware that the Sony PlayStation brought to the table and focused on 3D games full of eye-catching imagery and polygons galore, Symphony of the Night elected to focus on a 2D approach. While there are some 3D elements, like the opening cutscene that plays where we get to see a full 3D rendering of Dracula's castle, the rest of the game is in glorious 2D. While character and enemy sprites are amazing in their own right, I have to call out the environment. In this game, you're going to be spending all of your time in Dracula's castle, and every bit of care went into creating this place. The architecture of the castle really looks lived in and has a renaissance sort of feel to it when you look at the different structures. You aren't just trudging through stone corridors and empty halls. Every area of the castle has its own unique look and even some graphical effects that enhance the area even further. Take, for example, the Royal Chapel. In the foreground, you have the floor that you stand on, entrance and exits on either side of you, and a couple nondescript staircases on either side of the screen. But your eyes will immediately look at the background. There are beautiful stained glass windows and light that can sometimes shine through. Using some 3D techniques that I'm sure I don't understand, the background will shift in proportion to where your character is at the moment. It's almost a 3D form of Mode 7, where the background shifts at a different speed than the foreground. 3D imagery like this is used all over the castle to give the rooms that you're in some actual depth without appearing in actual 3D. It's really hard for me to describe without you actually looking at it, but take my word for it. It is Keanu Reeves' style of breathtaking. Going back to the characters and enemies, everything in this game looks amazing. Symphony of the Night even found a way to make the dreaded Medusa heads actually look good. Even my most hated enemy in the entire Castlevania franchise looks awesome here. You know which ones I'm talking about. The Humper Monkeys. These are those little hunchback looking things that like to jump everywhere. And yes, I am aware that they are actually called Flea Men, and that name arguably makes more sense, but I started calling them Humper Monkeys when I covered the original Castlevania back on episode 5 of this podcast, and I am not about to abandon that moniker. Anyway, though, the enemies in this game all look great. Not only does Symphony of the Night have over a hundred different enemy types, they all look unique behave differently, and even have unique death animations. They don't all just go poof and erupt in a blast of holy fire. They all expire in their own ways, which really give them all some pretty decent character. Skeletons will burst apart, 
sword-wielding lords will see their massive sword cut in half as it expires, and the blue frozen shades that fly around will cry out a blood-curdling scream as they vaporize before you. There's even an armored knight that uses a trained owl to attack you. If you dispatch the owl before you dispatch the knight, the knight will run over to his fallen friend, take a knee, and mourn its loss. While this opens up the hulking knight for some free attacks, this simple act really gave this enemy some depth, and I really enjoyed these little touches anytime that I saw them. Characters in this game are all animated incredibly well. Alucard himself looks stunning, especially when moving, jumping, or attacking. His long silver hair and his long cape flutter behind him, and his movement is so smooth, it's like buttering toast when the butter is the right temperature and it just glides right on the bread. Oh yeah. When Alucard moves, he leaves behind an ethereal trail of sorts, and it really solidifies his presence and character. Attacking, ducking, pulling out a shield, it all looks amazing, and that smoothness translates well to the relatively tight controls. Even when Alucard dies, he has somewhat unique death animations, too. If he's hit by a fire attack, he'll fly back and burst into flames before becoming ash. If he's hit with an ice attack, he'll turn into solid ice before melting away. And even if he takes normal damage, his own blood will cover himself before he expires. It's a little morbid to talk about, but graphically speaking though, it just adds more and more to his character and gives your death in the game some actual heft. Even his death cry is full of character as he cries out to the sky. Get used to that sound, by the way, because as we get into later parts of the game, you're probably going to hear that sound often. More on that later. Now, we're going to grab the game disc and pop it into our PlayStation, but before we do and fire the game up, I have to call out Symphony of the Night's amazing soundtrack. You'll hear plenty of it during this episode, but I don't think there's a single track that I don't like now that I'm thinking about it. The two Castlevania games that I've already played had some amazing soundtracks, but this game is competing for my favorite in the series so far. The soundtrack in Symphony of the Night has several different ranges, ranging from dark and brooding, to orchestral, to upbeat, and there's even a little jazz in there because why the hell not? I was talking to my buddy Bob about this game at work, and I was talking to him about the music. Because at first, I was kind of put off by the soundtrack. These particular tones that I just mentioned, the dark and brooding and then the orchestral and even that little bit of jazz, would change from area to area and those changes were kind of abrupt. One minute I'd be listening to a very appropriate orchestral tune as I was working my way through the castle and then suddenly I'd be in a new area listening to a tune that I can only describe as perfectly 80s. It was a little off-putting, but the more I played the game, the more the music not only grew on me, it started to fit into the game world and the experience that the developers wanted me to have. 
And once I discovered the soundtrack was on Spotify, it was all over from there. Now that I think about it though, there are a couple of vocal music tracks that I didn't particularly care for. Especially the song that plays at the end of the game. I don't know if it's copyrighted or anything, so I'm not going to play it here, but look it up if you can't remember it or if you've never heard it before. A song like this, while beautiful, just did not fit into this game at all for me. Okay, so that's the presentation. This game is gorgeous on the outside, but where it really shines is on the inside. I'm talking about the story and the gameplay. Let's grab the game disc, toss it into our PlayStation, and dive into Castlevania Symphony of the Night. Let me just hit the power button here. Ah, does that make you warm and fuzzy on the inside like it does for me? Like, even my skin's a little tingly. Anyway, after the Konami logo makes a 3D stylized appearance on screen, we're taken to the game's title screen. After pressing start, we're taken to a menu with a few options. We're asked to select our destiny by choosing to either select a file on our memory card, change our name, copy a file, or delete a file. To start a game or pick up where you left off, we need to choose File Select. Let's press the X button, and move on to the next screen. To start a new game, we just need to select an empty slot on our memory card. Once we do, we need to input a name. Let's see here. N-O-M-A-D. Perfect. Once we're done here, we press start and begin the game. On screen, we see the words Journey back to 1792 and the Transylvanian countryside of Romania. A CGI cutscene plays and we're shown the image of a tattered map that gives way to a mist-covered lake. In the distance, we can see a castle high atop a ledge. This is clearly Dracula's castle, and if you've ever played any other Castlevania game, it'll be instantly recognizable. We zoom in on the castle and take in its features. Lightning flashes across the sky, and as the thunder rumbles overhead, several bats fly across the screen. The camera zooms in one final time and eventually settles on a small part of the castle high in the sky. It's connected by a staircase that veterans of the series will also recognize. This area here is Dracula's Keep, and this place is exactly where our journey is going to begin. Next on screen, we see the words, Final Stage, Bloodlines. And by the time we finish reading them, the game itself fades on screen. Standing to our right is a warrior clad in a blue tunic. He's holding a whip and is waiting for us to pick up the controller and take action. This is Richter Belmont, a descendant of Simon Belmont, the protagonist from the first Castlevania game. The Belmont clan is a clan of monster hunters that are fated to battle Dracula anywhere he may appear, and Richter is one of the best. 
Using your directional pad on your controller, we can move Richter to the left and have him ascend the long staircase up to Dracula's throne room. The darkness of the night is thick and patches of black clouds fly by in the background. Once we get to the top of the stairs, we see a single tall candelabra. Veterans of the series know exactly what needs to be done here. By pressing the square button on the controller, Richter will attack with his whip. When the whip strikes the candelabra, it breaks apart revealing my favorite Castlevania sub-weapon, the Boomerang Cross. Sub-weapons make a return in Castlevania Symphony of the Night and can be used by pressing up on the directional pad and your attack button. But sub-weapons require hearts to use, so we need to make sure that we have a stockpile of those. Lucky for us, hearts are hidden in all manner of breakable objects around the castle. As we move forward with Richter, we'll walk by a long dining room table that has a couple candelabras on either side and a vase on the table itself. Couple whip smacks to those and they'll deposit some hearts for us to grab. Our heart total is on the upper left hand side of the screen as well as our remaining health. Soon we come to the end of the hallway and we're in Dracula's chambers. The music fades and Richter and Dracula have a fully voice acted conversation. Die, monster. You don't belong in this world. It was not by my hand that I'm once again given flesh. I was called here by humans who wish to pay me tribute. Before we move on, I have to call out the voice acting here really quick. It's not really great voice acting, but I can't help but love how campy and cheesy it sounds. Speaking of campy and cheesy, does Richter's voice actor sound familiar to some of you OG Resident Evil fans? Tribute? You steal men's souls and make them your slaves. Richter is voiced by Scott McCulloch, who was the same voice actor for Chris Redfield in both the original Resident Evil and in the full motion video shots of that game. I thought that was really cool when I put two and two together and recognized the voice work. I also learned that Scott McCulloch passed away in a traffic accident in Japan back in September of 2000. I hope you're resting in peace, my friend, and I'm glad that your legacy will live on in Symphony of the Night. Anyhow, back to Richter and Dracula. As Richter starts to berate Dracula, he delivers the most iconic voice line in probably this entire console generation. Your words are as empty as your soul. Mankind ill needs a savior such as you. What is a man? A miserable little pile of secrets. But enough talk. How about you? Dracula raises his hand to the sky and teleports away. Control is given back to the player just as Dracula teleports on screen right in front of us. The game has just started and we are already taking on Dracula. I remember being really excited in this moment. Having played the original Castlevanias, I already had a good idea of what I needed to do. I needed to whip Dracula in the face in order to do him any damage. Dracula is double the height of Richter, so in order to hit him, we have to jump up with the X button and then crack our whip at just the right time. We can also use our boomerang cross sub-weapon in the air here as well, so if we time it just right, we'll hit Dracula once and then again when the boomerang cross comes back. 
This whole battle was an epic way to start the game. The music that played while approaching Dracula did a really good job of pumping you up as you made your way to Dracula, and the music playing now solidifies that final battle feel. The battle to defeat Dracula wasn't exactly easy though. I never got the feeling that this was a tutorial level because things are happening fast and you don't really have a lot of time to sit back and take stock of what your controls do. Dracula wasn't certainly going nuts or anything like that, but his attacks were frequent, and when they struck you, they really hurt. Thinking about it in that way, it is kind of odd to start the player off in such a crazy battle situation. There was a point where I lost all of my health, but I was revived by a young girl who I would later figure out was named Maria Renard. My life was restored at that point, and it seemed like my power had increased too. Eventually, though, I had won the battle, and after a blood-curdling scream from our foe, the scene is seemingly captured in a photograph that is promptly engulfed in flames. No! It cannot be! From here, we're shown a slow crawl of text that serves to set the story up for our adventure. It was Richter Belmont, the legendary vampire hunter, who succeeded in finally ending the menace of Count Dracula, Lord of the Vampires, who had been brought back from the grave by the Dark Priest Shaft. However, one night, four years later, under the glare of a full moon, Richter mysteriously vanished. With no idea of where to begin her search, Maria Renard set out to look for him. It was then that fate intervened. Castlevania, the castle of Dracula, which is rumored to appear once every century, suddenly materialized from out of the mist as if to show her the way. Meanwhile, powerful forces were struggling for the soul of a man named Alucard. The very same Alucard who had teamed up with Trevor Belmont to battle his immortal father, Count Vlad Tepes Dracula. Alucard, in order to purge the world of his own cursed bloodline, had submerged his vampiric powers and entered into what was supposed to be an eternal slumber. But now, he is awake and aware of the evil once again at work in his homeland. The time has come once again for the forces of good and evil to engage in their ancient battle. Dracula's castle beckons for you, and no man can say who shall emerge victorious. <laughs> I really enjoy that. Anyway, while watching the Netflix show has certainly allowed me to get a lot more out of the story that is the Castlevania lure, I still love that the early games in this series kept it to a somewhat simplistic narrative. You, good guy, go defeat bad guy, and scene. But beyond that though, Symphony of the Night does do a bit more storytelling as you make your way through Dracula's castle. 
while the story really isn't super involved. I won't get into the details in case you haven't played this game before and you want to discover it all for yourself. But I will say, playing as Alucard, you'll get a chance to meet several characters on your journey, and all of them will offer a little bit more insight into Dracula's castle and even Alucard himself. Early on, you'll run into Maria Renard, who I mentioned in my evil monologue. She's looking for Richter since he's gone missing, and naturally comes to Dracula's castle thinking that he's here. Eventually you do run into Richter, but it is pretty clear that not all is as it seems. There are some minor characters and demons you'll come across as well, and when you do, the interactions are all done beautifully. Every spoken line is voice acted, and you'll get to enjoy every bit of the campy dialogue as it erupts from your speakers. Oh, and I think this is probably a good time to mention that Symphony of the Night has multiple endings. No details, but while the good and the best endings occur if you complete the game and nail a certain percentage of the game explored, there is one bad ending that can happen pretty early on. It's actually an ending so bad that if you come across it, you might think it's the actual ending and miss out on over half of the actual game. I know, it's crazy to even say that. And we'll touch on this idea later, but I just wanted to throw that out there. For now at least, if you've played the game before, I'm sure you know exactly what it is I'm talking about. Alright, let's shift back to the game. After the text monologue that serves as the story setup, we're taken to a dark forest. The screen is scrolling from left to right very quickly, and in a flash, we can see our story's hero race on screen. Running at full speed with an ethereal trail being left in his wake, Alucard is on a collision course with the front gate of Dracula's castle. With practically no effort, Alucard leaps and makes it on top of a drawbridge that's on its way up and flies past a huge steel door just as it's about to close. The castle is going to have to endure Alucard and his wrath whether it wants to or not. At this point, the player will take control of Alucard. It's dead quiet, and only the sounds of the howling winds can be heard. Just like with Richter, the directional pad is what we use to move Alucard around. We move him to the right of the screen, and almost immediately, we are face-to-face -face with a huge monster. The gigantic wolf creature stares Alucard down, red eyes fixed on his pixelated jugular vein. I remember being somewhat surprised at this point. A hulking enemy like this right off the bat? Well, it's not going to kill itself, so we step into action. Pressing the square button will have Alucard attack, but he doesn't have a whip like Richter or any of the other Belmonts who came before him did. Alucard carries a sword. While it's quick to swing, the range is certainly more limited than any of the whips that you may have used before. We need to make sure that we're close to our enemies before we could take them on effectively. In this case, though, all it takes is one swing of our sword, and the giant wolf lets out a huge cry and expires in a pillar of flames. Huh, that was a little easier than I expected. Before moving on to the next area, though, I think we should take a moment and get our bearings. Pressing the start button on our controller brings up the character status screen. 
Symphony of the Night is a game that has role-playing elements, so we can see on screen some of Alucard's stats. To the left, we can see four core statistics and a number next to them. Strength, Constitution, Intelligence, and Luck. The higher the number, the higher the stat. Strength impacts your attack power, Constitution impacts your defense and how much damage you can take, Intelligence level impacts your magic power, and luck affects your chances to land critical hits on your enemies, and I believe rare item drop rates when you defeat enemies. Near the top of the screen, we can see Alucard's hit points, magic points, and how many hearts he has. Quickly for the uninitiated, hearts in Castlevania act as sort of ammunition for sub-weapons. As long as we have a healthy supply of hearts, and this game will certainly make sure that you do, we can use whatever sub-weapon we have. On screen to the right, we can see our attack and defensive stats. Bottom left, we have how much experience we've acquired and how much we need to get to the next level. And then finally, we can see how much gold we have on hand. Now if you're anything like me, opening up this menu for the very first time probably put a little smile on your face. I love role-playing games, and by extension, I love RPG stats. I love doing actions in-game to gain experience points, which then translates into leveling up and my character getting stronger. The fact that this system exists in Symphony of the Night immediately got me excited. I knew I was going to be exploring a vast castle with many dangers lurking within, but now I had a reason to fight them all, aside from just advancing to the next area. I had an incentive to learn their attack patterns and find the most effective way to dispatch them. When there is an experience system in play, rarely do I find my efforts wasted as I'm constantly growing. But does Symphony of the Night have anything else to offer in this area? Oh yes. You'll notice you have a small menu in the middle of the screen as well. From here, we can look at Alucard's equipment, see any magic spells he's learned, and any relics collected, and also look up any familiars that are with us. Thinking back to Castlevania 3, I thought the inclusion of partner characters took the series to a whole new level. We're barely five minutes into Symphony of the Night, and it's clear this game is going deep. We have no reason to look at most of the menu options right now since we're just starting off, but let's take a look at our equipment. Ah, so this is why we were able to slay that giant wolf with such ease. We're outfitted with some pretty awesome equipment right from the start. We have the Alucard sword equipped in our right hand and the Alucard shield in our left hand. The square and circle buttons on our controller use left and right handed items respectively. We also have the Dragon Helm equipped on our head, the Alucard Mail on our chest, which comes with a prompt that says it's strong versus all attacks, and a cloak called the Twilight Cloak. We even have a couple slots for accessories that give their own stat boosts as well. As we play through Symphony of the Night, enemies may drop new and sometimes even more powerful equipment, or we may find new items hidden throughout the castle itself. Leveling up Alucard in combat will raise his stats, but the equipment he has equipped will be just as important as well, especially since some equipment comes with other benefits. The equipment that we have on right now is pretty damn powerful, so we should be pretty set for a while. It would be an absolute shame if something were to happen to it. 
Eh, ignoring that terrible bit of foreshadowing, let's exit the menu and get back to the game. Moving Alucard forward, we enter the castle interior. The long hallway is dark, but the tall windows lining the walls give it a little light and a view outside. We encounter some more wolf creatures, but those are easily dispatched. As we progress further, light fills the room and without warning, corpses of the undead rise from the ground and shamble towards us. As we steal ourselves for battle, background music starts to play and it immediately helps put us in the right frame of mind. As the walking corpses draw closer, we see more and more of them appearing from off screen. No matter though, these rabble are nothing. It's our job to see them to their eternal slumber, and by pressing the attack button, we do just that. One by one, we begin to cut through our foes. One at a time, the creatures erupt into a plume of flames and vanish. This would almost be too easy if it wasn't so much fun. And as this is all happening, Alucard is slowly gaining more experience. Eventually, we get enough to level up, and the game stops for just a brief moment to let us know that this has happened. With a level increase, we get some basic stat increases, as well as an increase to our overall hit points, magic points, and heart points. When I gained my first level, the whole thing just sunk its teeth into me. I probably spent more time than I should have here in this little hallway, just trying to take out some more enemies and grinding out a few more levels. I love the grind, and the idea of potentially overleveling myself and preparing for some tougher battles down the road really excited me. So in the spirit of my first playthrough, let's put Alucard to work for a little bit. Alright, that's enough for now. Let's keep pushing on, shall we? As we make our way through the ground floor of Dracula's castle and past an underground waterway full of monstrous mermen, we make our way to the end of another long hallway that has a small set of stairs at the end. The bottom of the stairs protrude outwards a little, almost unnaturally so. Pressing down on the D-pad, we have Alucard duck, and then we have him slash with his sword. Sure enough, there is something there. The protrusion gets knocked away, and out falls our first consumable item, a turkey. Just like in classic Castlevania games, food items that replenish health can be found cemented into the walls of the castle. I assume this is done in a way to preserve them through the years, but regardless of the preservation technique, we now have a full-on turkey, with plate included, in our inventory. What's that, you might be asking? We can't just eat it on the spot? We have an inventory? You heard that correctly. In Symphony of the Night, we have a full-on inventory, and collecting the turkey actually places it in our inventory. To use it, or any other food item we might come across, we actually have to equip it in one of our hands, and then, in real time, use the item, which will toss it onto the ground, and then we can walk over it, and then reap the rewards of increased health. Wow, that seems like a lot of work to heal yourself! You are not wrong, dear listener. 
Other than potions, which I think Alucard will drink straight away if I remember correctly, food items need to be tossed on the dirty, grimy castle floor to be able to eat and then regain your health. This is my first actual gripe with this game. And I understand it's an older game and they were just getting their feet wet with this sort of gameplay style, but I would often just let myself die out of stubbornness then stop what I was doing, open my menu, and follow all these steps that I needed to in order to heal. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. We grab the turkey, shove it neatly into our pocket, and then we ascend the stairs. We make our way to an exterior part of the castle and find ourselves face to face with death. Complete with his dark robes and long scythe, he looks at Alucard and begins to speak. Ah, Alucard. What is your business here? I've come to put an end to this. Still befriending mortals? I'll not ask you to return to our side, but I demand you cease your attack. I will not. You shall regret those words. We will meet again. Death raises his hand towards Alucard, and with a flick of his bony wrist, we see all the equipment Alucard was wearing appear on screen. Alucard voices his clear confusion and shock. What? In a flash, our equipment is cast away. Death laughs and then flies away as well. At this point, we regain control of Alucard and immediately enter our menu. Our worst fears are realized. Alucard has absolutely no equipment. Attacking now has Alucard punch the air instead of swinging a sword. The taste of power that we just enjoyed is gone, and now it's going to be up to us to find new equipment and try to regain our powers. In all honesty, though, I really like that the game did this to the player. We are given a taste of what a powered-up Alucard can do, even if it was a brief, limited taste. Many games in this genre typically start you out with no equipment or powers, and it's up to you to regain them as you progress through the game and slowly build yourself back up. Symphony of the Night is no different in this regard, and I think it's my favorite aspect of the Metroidvania gameplay style as a whole. Nevertheless, we have no time to sit and ponder our predicament. We need to keep moving. Our goal is to destroy this castle and defeat evil where it stands. At this point in the game, we're really left to our own devices here. There are no waypoints telling us where to go. We'll just have to explore the castle and see what secrets we can find and pathways we can discover. And this right here is my favorite idea behind this entire game. Symphony of the Night doesn't really hold your hand. It lets you explore Dracula's castle in whatever order that you want. The castle is a sandbox of sorts, and you're on your own to explore and conquer it. Now, you won't have immediate access to every part of the castle, though. Some doors are locked and can only be opened with the right relic, and some areas of the castle can't be accessed until you found and learned the right ability. So all that said, where do we start? Well, it would be extremely helpful if we had a map that we could use and reference as we go. Well, oddly enough, we do. Or at least we have a map of the places that we've explored already. Pressing the select button on the controller, we're shown a map of the castle. Unless we find an actual map, all we can see at the moment are the rooms that we've been in before. 
These are marked as blue little squares on the map. Really, the best thing that we can do is just go exploring and see what we can find and defeat a few of Dracula's minions along the way. So while there's much more under the surface, this is the general setup for Castlevania Symphony of the Night. You're mainly going to be exploring the castle and filling out your map. The most fun I had with this game was going from room to room and just seeing what I could discover. There are tons of unique enemies in this game, and as you encounter them, you begin to learn about them and find easier and easier ways to combat them and defeat them in battle. You're fairly weak to start, and it'll take multiple hits to see an enemy vanquish in some cases, but eventually, your level will increase and you'll come across better weapons, and then soon you'll be one-shotting your foes and casting their corpses aside with very little to no effort. But what else does this game offer from a gameplay standpoint that makes this experience one of the best? Well, allow me to touch on some of the relics that you'll come across and how those will impact gameplay. Symphony of the Night's relics are unique items that have their own separate screen in the menu. When you acquire a relic, it will bestow upon Alucard an ability. It can be something that you have to activate with the press of a button, or it can be a passive ability that is always in place. Some relics aren't required to complete the game, but others are essential for progression. One example of a relic that isn't really required is the Spirit Orb. When you're in possession of this relic and the ability is set to on in the menu, a numeric value will appear above an enemy when you deal damage to it. This will allow you to understand how much damage that you're actually dealing to an enemy. This can be incredibly useful if you're trying to figure out if there's a specific weapon type that's more effective against certain monsters, or if you're trying to gauge the effects of specific abilities. There's also the Fairy Scroll that will display the name of the enemy that you're currently attacking at the bottom of your screen. These are cool relics in their own right, but they're not anything that you absolutely need. Relics like the Leapstone and the Soul of Bat are a couple that you will absolutely need in order to experience this game to the end. The Leapstone allows Alucard to double jump, meaning when he jumps, you can jump again while in midair, increasing Alucard's jump height. You'll find ledges and overhangs that you just can't quite reach while you're exploring the castle, but finding the Leapstone is how you'll need to progress. Now, the Soul of Bat is an interesting relic, and this will lead into a conversation about some of Alucard's awesome vampiric powers. When you're in possession of this relic, you're able to have Alucard change into a bat at the push of a button. As long as you have magic points to use and sustain the transformation, you can fly all over the place, which dramatically changes and expands your ability to explore. Just press the R1 button and... Presto! You are now a bat. And if that weren't cool enough, there's more relics that you can find and add to your bat form's abilities. Fire of Bat will allow you to shoot a fireball as a bat, damaging enemies. Echo of Bat gives you a sonar wave that you can use to light up dark rooms. And Force of Echo allows you to damage enemies with your sonar wave ability. These open up multiple ways to explore the castle and battle your foes. You also have the ability to turn into a wolf, as well as a cloud of mist once you find the appropriate relics. 
I didn't use Alucard's wolf form all that much, but its dash ability allows you to get to some of those hard-to-reach places. But I did use the Cloud of Mist form pretty often. Not only is it required for you to get to some blocked-off areas of the castle and progress through certain obstacles in the game, enemies cannot harm you while you're in your mist form. You can't harm them either, though, unless you find my favorite relic in the entire game, the Gas Cloud. This allows you to deal damage to enemies in mist form when you touch them. And the best part? Your white misty form is changed to a brown one. Yes, you pretty much become a fart cloud, and it is absolutely hilarious when you engulf an enemy and slowly watch it choke and die. All that's really missing is the fart noise Alucard should make when you transform into this poisonous mist. Just press the L1 button and... <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. I promise that it'll be the only fart joke that you'll ever hear from me. Well, maybe. At least it's the last one for this episode. <laughs> Alright, enough of that childish banter. Let's get back on track. So exploring, fighting monsters, and gaining experience, and finding relics aren't the only things you'll need to know about when traversing Dracula's castle. Sub-weapons make a return in Symphony of the Night, and there's a few more than the usual standard ones. I'm going to touch on just a few of them before we move on. Returning sub-weapons are the Dagger, the Axe, Stopwatch, and Holy Water. The Dagger was actually fun to use this time around, I will say. While it's still pretty weak, you could toss out several in quick succession, and I thought that was much more useful than in previous games. The axe was decent, but I didn't find myself using it all that much. When you use it, it flies upwards in an arc, which makes it great for airborne enemies. But Alucard has decent jump height, even before gaining the ability to jump higher, so I usually didn't have a hard time hitting enemies up high. And maybe it was me, but the axe just seemed pretty weak in this game. Moving on to the stopwatch, it is used to completely stop enemies on screen, but not all enemies are susceptible to this. There was this witch enemy that I remember coming across that would have a shield up in front of her constantly, and using the stopwatch made short work of her because I could get behind her and attack her from behind. But this enemy was literally the only enemy that I consciously made an effort to use the stopwatch on, so I often avoided the stopwatch anytime I saw it. The holy water was the one sub-weapon that I found myself using consistently. When you toss it out, it will break open and a flame will erupt on the floor. Anything touching the flame will take damage. It was great for bigger enemies and often melted them in one or two applications. Now, some of the new sub-weapons making an appearance in this game included the Bible, the Rebound Stone, and the, uh, Agane? Agane. Sure. The Agane, and another item I can't pronounce that looks like salt cubes. The Bible would float around Alucard causing damage to anything it touched. The Rebound Stone would bounce off surfaces dealing damage to anything it touched. The A-Gun A, I got, whatever, would deal lightning damage to enemies, and the salt cubes acted a lot like holy water. 
While I liked these new additions, I didn't use them hardly ever. The Bible was great in areas that had Medusa heads or other pest-like enemies, but that's all I used that for. The rebound stone had the potential to be a powerful weapon, but the bouncing of the stone was almost a little too random to be relied upon. The, uh, the, the, the lightning thing admittedly wasn't something that I messed around with a ton, so I can't really speak to it. I used it once or twice and just never really found it all that useful, but it wasn't until I finished the game that I read that you had to hold down the attack button after the lightning made contact with an enemy to get some sustained damage out of it, but in the moment I had no idea how this item was really supposed to work. I did make use of the salt cubes though if holy water wasn't around. The cubes would come out in twos or threes and did damage upon contact. I felt like the salt cubes did a little bit more damage than the holy water, and they were pretty easy to use, and I used them just like the holy water and saved them specifically for bigger foes. Oh, and one more I forgot to mention was the holy cross. Now this isn't the boomerang cross that I loved so much in previous games, this cross will actually cast a powerful spell and damage all enemies on screen. While it was awesome to see, and amazing to use to clear out an entire area, it costs a whopping 100 hearts to use, so its use to me anyway was extremely limited. Because of that fact alone, I just got along without this one. Now as you explore, you'll find that enemies and sometimes objects you destroy will drop money. It'll be a little while before you discover what all the money you collect can actually be used for, but it absolutely behooves you to collect it wherever and whenever you can. Eventually in your travels, you'll come across an area of the castle called the Long Library. The library section of the castle is one of my favorites. I really enjoy the music in this section, and there's just something elegant about this place. It's not the most difficult area, and it's not even that graphically appealing, but the library exudes a classy, elegant atmosphere that makes demon slaying seem very, I don't know, graceful. But that's not all the long library has for us to experience. Eventually, we'll come to the back of the library and come face to face with the master librarian himself. He's the keeper of the library and watches over all the accumulated knowledge that has been amassed over the centuries. He's in possession of some special items and with enough coin, he may even part with some of them. As Alucard approaches the Librarian, he's eager to strike a deal if that means he can gain an advantage over his enemies. It's been a long time, old one. Oh, it's you, Master Alucard. What do you need? I need your help. Young Master, I cannot aid one who opposes the Master. You won't go unrewarded. Really? In that case, just tell me what you need. From here, we get a menu that appears on screen. We can buy items, sell items, view battle tactics that we can apply against some of the bosses in the castle, and view a list of enemies that we've encountered and defeated up to this point. Depending on how much money you have when you first discover the librarian, you'll be able to walk away with a decent array of items. 
The Librarian has consumables that can help you resist certain types of enemy damage, cure ailments, and even heal yourself. More importantly, in my opinion, the Librarian has several pieces of equipment that you can use to make yourself stronger if you need the boost. You can sell items you find to give yourself a boost in coin, but the problem here is you could only sell gems that you find. While this isn't a bad thing, really, I was surprised to learn that you can't sell any old equipment that you find that you don't need anymore. I think at one point in the game I had seven cloth tunics that were all but useless up to that point in the game, and all they were doing was just hanging out and taking up space in my inventory. Not that your inventory space is limited, it was just one extra item I had to scroll past. Wasn't the end of the world or anything, and I suppose I could appreciate the librarian only wanting shiny, valuable things, but one of the unspoken rules of RPGs, I feel like, is that I expect shops to take all of my worthless junk and pay me for the privilege. But part of me also liked seeing everything I had hoarded throughout the entire game, so there was that, I suppose. Checking out enemy tactics for a small fee will give you access to a video you can watch and see how best to defeat a certain boss. These are useful, but I didn't waste my money on them. Instead, I would save my game in a save room, come here and watch a video, and then reload my previous save after I got what I wanted out of the video. If you do want to plunk down the coin and keep it plunked down, that video can be watched an infinite number of times after you pay for it. Either approach is fine, though, to each their own. Now before moving on, make sure to check out the enemy list. This bestiary is a great resource if you want to get more information on the enemies that you're facing in the castle. You'll see their stats and also see if they have any specific weaknesses. If you are a completionist, it's pretty satisfying to explore the castle fully and fill out the entire thing. I don't think you'll get any sort of in-game reward if you do, but I can certainly appreciate the appeal. There's one more thing I want to touch on before we move into the real meat of Symphony of the Night. Aside from transforming into various animals provided you have the relic to do so, Alucard also has the ability to cast magic spells. The Librarian can sell you magic scrolls that teach you how to use your spells, and will put them in the menu for you to view, but I believe I heard somewhere that these are not necessary, and if you know how to cast a magic spell and have the required magic points to do so, you can do this at any time. Spells include the ability to steal the health from nearby enemies, and even shoot fireballs, for instance. You can even summon spirits to fight with you. While this all sounds awesome and adds yet another layer to this game experience, I actually went my entire time playing this game not casting a single one of these spells. So how do you cast a spell? Well, it's not as easy as using a sub-weapon. You actually have to input the appropriate button command to cast a spell, and these button commands are very similar to some of the more complicated fighting game moves out there. Here's an example of one of the spells, I think. Using the D-pad, you have to start from the left and then move your D-pad up and to the right in one motion and then end with pressing the attack button. If you do it right, Alucard will shout, 
and the spell will take effect. But if you do it wrong, you'll just find yourself flailing your weapon around while the enemy closes in on you. On one hand, I liked the addition of these spells as they increased your options while playing and really gave Alucard more ways to show off his demonic powers. But on the other hand, I could never get a spell to work when I needed it to. I'm not great at fighting games in general by default, and I've always had an issue with more complicated command inputs, so I gave up trying and just never utilized the spells in this game. I was able to complete the game without the use of a single spell, so that should tell you how important they are. For those of you listening, I'm genuinely curious if you felt the same way while playing, or if you were able to master all of Alucard's spells. Speaking of summoning spirits to fight with you, I almost forgot about one more game feature that I thought was really cool. In Symphony of the Night, Alucard can find relics that will allow him to have a familiar to accompany him on the battlefield. Several familiars are available to us, including a bat, a winged demon, and a fairy, just to name a couple. You can only have one familiar with you at a time, but while they're with you, you can enjoy some awesome benefits. For example, the bat familiar will attack enemies for you. The demon familiar will also deal damage to enemies with its long spear, but it also has the ability to spot and activate out-of-reach switches within the castle. So this creature is essential in accessing certain areas of the castle. And the fairy familiar is more of a support type of creature. While she doesn't seem to do much at first, if you have any potions in your inventory and find yourself injured, the fairy will automatically use them on you to get you back to stable health. The nice thing about this ability is she'll use your weaker potions first, and then go towards the stronger ones, but she will never use the big big ones like elixirs, which is nice. If you get hit with a status effect like stone or poison, the fairy will heal you if you have the right item in your inventory. And on top of all that, she is the only way to use the life apple item. If you die and have one of these in your inventory, she'll use it to revive you on the spot and you can continue to fight. It's pretty neat. Best of all though, the fairy will call out spots in the wall, ceiling, or floor that Alucard can break open to reveal hidden items or paths. She is my favorite familiar by far, but as I got more comfortable and took less damage, I traded her out for a more damage-dealing one. What continues to add layers to this game is the fact that your familiars will also level up with you. As you gain experience by killing creatures, your familiar will get stronger. As they pass certain level milestones, they'll gain access to additional abilities. It pays to stick with a familiar that you like and have them grow with you, but don't be afraid to swap them out from time to time. You never know what areas they might find for you or different abilities they may use and help give you that much needed edge. Okay, I think that's about all I have for the gameplay, and even then, I'm sure I'm missing something. <laughs> this game is massive, and everything about it is either right in your face or hidden in plain sight. I will say, Symphony of the Night suffers from being slightly too ambitious sometimes, and some of the things you come across end up becoming clutter and needless. While there are a lot of items in this game, both consumable and equipable, it's not always inherently obvious what something does or what benefits you reap by using it or wearing it. 
Depending on the type of person you are, or even depending on what your mood is at that time, this can be a great thing or a terrible thing. Great because the game will have you experimenting and trying new things to uncover benefits that weren't inherently obvious. Terrible if you find yourself lost and unsure what to do when you have an item you need in your pocket and just never knew how to use it right. Here's a great example, and I don't think this gives too much away about the experience. At one point, you'll come across a long corridor with spikes on the ceiling and on the floor. Even in your mist form, there is no way to get past this area because you have to rematerialize and open a door at the end of the hall. As soon as you do, the spikes will repeatedly damage you until you perish. For the longest time, I had no idea how to get past this area. But then I tried something completely random. I had in my possession an armor called the Spike Breaker. I wasn't using it because I had armor with better stats at the time, but the description on this particular piece of armor read, Spike Breaking Armor. I thought to myself, I wonder. So I put the Spike Breaker armor on and decided to try my hand at that hallway again. Sure enough, the spikes crumbled under my feet. Part of me smiled, having figured out how to finally get past this area. But part of me was honestly a little pissed that I had the key to my salvation on me and had no idea how to use it. This won't be the only time this would happen to me, and I find I'm torn every time I encounter something like this. I love that the game makes you experiment with items that have vague descriptions. Discovering what they do is very rewarding, and I can only imagine young kids back in the day would rally their friends around the slide at the playground just to let them know what a specific item did or how they found a way to use it. But playing this as an older adult, I found it annoying because I didn't want to be bogged down by roadblocks quite like this. The pacing of the game overall was generally pretty smooth, but when I would get to points like this, it was a genuine disruption. Thankfully though, those moments weren't all that common, and eventually I did cave and check out an online guide here and there if I was really stuck. Oh, and one more gripe before we continue on. For a game as involved and as well put together as this, I was not happy that the series stapled knockback was still present. When Alucard takes damage, he'll get flung back before landing back on his feet. While he's being flung back, you lose control of him. Now, while there's no bottomless pits to be flung into this time around, thank god, you can find yourself frustrated if you're trying to climb high areas like the clock tower, for instance. There's one clock tower room that is so cramped, it's incredibly hard to climb on its own. But to make matters worse, the developers thought it would be fun to put a bunch of Medusa heads in this room that continually spawn. I kept getting knocked back to the very bottom of the room and having to climb the gear platforms over and over again. It was giving me some genuine anxiety and I did not appreciate it. Screw that room and any room that looks like it from this point forward. Now before we finish up this episode, there's one big thing I still haven't mentioned that Symphony of the Night veterans have probably been waiting patiently for. 
For those that haven't played this game before and want to experience this game's story and exploration on their own terms with no hints as to the ending or what lay ahead, I encourage you to stop the podcast here. I know there are some out there that want to stay as far away from gameplay and story spoilers as possible in all manner of media, and I want to respect that. So if you don't want to hear about the very big twist in this game, it was nice having you here on the podcast today with us, and I will talk to you next time. Otherwise, you may want to strap yourselves in. I'm going to touch on the multiple endings to this game and how you can miss a very, very big part of this game if you don't explore enough of the castle. And I have to say, it is a damn shame if you miss it too. So I'm going to take a quick break and allow anyone who wants to head out to do so. When I return, we're going to talk about the inverted castle. Okay, let's talk about the big twist, the hidden part of this game. Well, really it isn't all that hidden, I don't think, but I can see how someone playing this game for the first time could miss it, especially if they stumble upon an area too soon and don't have the item they need to see through the dark illusion of the castle. So as you explore the castle, it's possible to discover Dracula's throne room. You'll more than likely know you're close to this area based on the background of the area that you're in, and if you were paying attention during the opening of the game where you were controlling Richter and fighting Dracula. If you make your way back to the throne room, you'll find someone waiting for you, and it won't be Dracula. Richter Belmont will be there, and he's named himself the Lord of the Castle. It makes no sense why a Belmont would decide to be the lord of Dracula's castle, and the reasoning Richter gives you makes even less sense. It doesn't matter, though, what you think, as a fight ensues. Richter here is no slouch, and you can easily be wiped out if you aren't careful. However, if you time your attacks just right and make use of your agility, you can best Richter and take him down. Now, if you kill Richter, the game will end right there and give you the quote-unquote bad ending. Alucard will wonder what it was that drove Richter to walk a path of war and destruction, and then he vows to never return to his homeland. At this point, the credits roll, and that's it. There is absolutely no indication that there is more to this game. You'll probably have around a 100% map completion percentage as well, so really, you have absolutely no reason to suspect otherwise. But there is a huge secret hiding in plain sight that you can miss if you don't explore enough of the castle or figure out how to use two items that you find. As you explore Dracula's castle and defeat some of the awesome boss monsters, they'll drop items and equipment for you. 
you'll eventually find two rings, the silver ring and the gold ring. Both of them have partial inscriptions on them, which you can read in your inventory, but when you read them side by side, they will say, Where in Clock Tower? You'll have been through the Clock Tower area at some point by now, and there's a big room with a large gear on the wall in the center of it all. If you wear these two items in this room, a secret passageway will open. If you follow the passage, you'll come across Maria Renard. She'll concede to Alucard that something is wrong with Richter, and agrees that he must be stopped, but she can't help but feel as though he's being controlled by something. Before parting ways, Maria will give you the Holy Glasses, and says that they will help Alucard see through the castle's illusions. If you equip these Holy Glasses and then confront Richter, you'll notice a green orb floating aimlessly over Richter's head. That orb is your target. Doing what you can to not harm Richter, you need to face him in battle and do enough damage to the green orb to destroy it and free Richter from the mind control that he's under. Once you do that, you'll discover that Richter was being controlled by the Dark Priest Shaft. At this point, Shaft summons a brand new castle from the sky and retreats into it. After some dialogue with Richter and Maria, Alucard decides to go on alone, find Shaft, and finish this once and for all. At this point, you teleport into the inverted castle in the sky. It's pretty much the same exact castle you just explored, but the entire place is literally upside down. Now your mission is to explore this new castle, find five pieces of Dracula, and use them to activate the final battle with Shaft. When I learned how to access the inverted castle, I was torn again between being very excited but also very irritated. While I argue uncovering its existence isn't that hard if you're committing yourself to exploring as much of the original castle as possible, I can see how this whole experience can be missed. If you trigger the bad ending, there is zero mention of there being more to do in this game. I can only imagine how many kids played this game when they were little, killed Richter, saw the credits roll, and assumed that that was all there was to the game. That thought alone is just baffling to me. But again, looking at the other hand, I think the idea of the inverted castle is absolute genius. While some may think it's a lazy design choice to just flip over the original map that you were in so you can get more gameplay, it really is a fantastic way to not just double the size of the game, but it gives players a whole new challenge and a way for Alucard to keep growing. I am no level design expert by any stretch, but I have to imagine they had to create the initial castle while keeping in mind how players would have to traverse it once it was flipped upside down. And while I found myself using Alucard's bat form far more than I would have liked to get around some of these places in the inverted castle, the overall design of it was just amazing to me. It was exceptionally challenging as well, and I thought that was a very welcome addition. I found myself one-hit killing most everything in the original castle up to that point, but now, 
enemies were stronger, they were more plentiful, they had different abilities. So I had to go back to taking my time with enemy encounters and really working through conflicts. Admittedly though, the Inverted Castle's difficulty spike was a little jarring at first. Not only were there plenty of new and stronger enemies, there were a lot more traps. Like these spike traps on wheels that you only ever saw when it was too late to avoid them. While there was a part of me that was almost put off by the idea of re-exploring a castle I just got done exploring, I could not help but feel that pull of discovery grab me all over again. I loved going into rooms and filling out the map in search of better gear and more relics. Some of the boss monsters were a genuine challenge and I found myself feeling incredibly satisfied when I would successfully fell them. Oh, and remember all of Alucard's original equipment from the start of the game? You know, the stuff that Death decided to just whisk off into nowhere? You can find them scattered in the inverted castle. I really felt like I was getting myself back to full strength by the time my playthrough was over, and that feeling of completion really brought Castlevania Symphony of the Night full circle for me. Once you find and defeat Shaft, and then square off and defeat the newly resurrected Dracula, you'll get the game's good ending. If you explored a combined 196% of the two castles, or higher, you'll get the game's best ending. Even after experiencing this, I had a drive to just dive right back into this game and give it another run. I knew this podcast episode was going to be a long one, so I left out some of the finer details, but there's more replay value here than meets the eye. Swords aren't the only weapons that Alucard can wield, for instance. There are daggers that have a much quicker attack, two-handed weapons that will swing slow but deal massive damage, and even these two-handed nunchucks that I found that I never really messed with. Since you have two hands to use, you can create some interesting offensive and defensive strategies. Do you use a sword in one hand and a shield in the other? Or maybe you do like I did, and keep a high-powered slower sword in one hand and a quick but weaker dagger in the other. And that doesn't include the equipment I know I didn't find that can be dropped from enemies. I did happen across a sword called, I think it's pronounced, the Chrysogrim. This beast of a sword could be used while Alucard was moving. One swing of it would hit an enemy up to four times, and there was practically no cooldown between swings. Once I got this puppy, the game was almost too easy. Once I finished the game, I went online and tried to get an idea of some of the things that I'd missed. I discovered that there were plenty of weapons that I'd never even found, and some of the ones I did have had effects I didn't even know about, like inflicting poison on enemies or having a special attack command. Ugh, I could go on and on about all the little things this game has to offer, but I think it's time to wrap this one up. Castlevania Symphony of the Night was a game that surpassed all of my expectations, and I encourage you to give it a chance if you can. While I still can't decide if I love or hate the idea that half this game is technically hidden behind a puzzle you don't really know exists, it's the best kind of reward for those that really put time and effort into this game. 
While there were times I felt lost and not sure where I needed to go next, the map feature helped keep me on track for the most part. And even when it didn't, running around the castle, looking for the next step, wasn't completely bad, thanks to the idea that killing creatures would gain me more experience and potentially more cash to spend with the librarian. Even if I lost some progress due to an untimely death, I never felt like I was wasting my time, and everything I did had some sort of value. If I had the time to commit, I would absolutely jump back into this game and see what secrets I missed and try to fill out the entire bestiary just to say that I did. And I may still do that down the road, who knows. More than anything though, I continue to be in awe of the Castlevania franchise as a whole and I cannot wait to see what comes next. If they did this well back in 1997, I cannot imagine how other games in the series turned out. So, without any doubt, Castlevania will be a series that I will continue to explore. Just like exploring Dracula's castle, I cannot wait to uncover the next hidden secret. That marks the end of the journey today, my friends. This has been episode 43 of the Retro Wildlands, Castlevania Symphony of the Night for the original Sony PlayStation. Thank you very much for spending time with me today while I talked about a fantastic new-to-me game. Thinking back on the episode, there's definitely a decent amount of things that I didn't really get a chance to touch on, but there is just so much to this game. I absolutely encourage you to give this game a chance and discover some of those missed details for yourself. One of the things video games do so well is invoke a natural sense of discovery and wonder, and Symphony of the Night practically nails this. I would love to play through it again, but there's more Castlevania games out there that are calling my name. Without a doubt, I will be covering another game in this series on the show, but the question is going to have to be, which one? If you have a suggestion as to where I should go next, let me know by messaging me over on our social media pages. If I have the means to play the game, I will certainly consider it. If you like the show today and want to show it or myself some support, please consider subscribing to the Retro Wildlands on your podcasting platform. As I play more involved games, it obviously takes me longer to put an episode together about it, so the best thing that you can do is subscribe to the show, so that you're notified the instant I put something new out. Now, if you really like the show and really appreciate what I'm trying to do here, and you have a few minutes to spare, I'd really appreciate it if you gave the show a good review if your pod platform allows you to do so. 
I put a lot of effort into playing these games, writing a good script, and editing the show into what it is, and if you really like it, I'd love for you to let me know. But you're under no obligation to do so. The fact that you've listened to the show this far is much more than I could ask for. I'm always thankful that you give me some of your time, and I really appreciate it. So, what's coming up next? After a game this involved, I think I need a palate cleanser. I don't mean that as a bad thing, I just need to partake in a shorter game that I can sit down with and quickly turn that around into an episode of the show. One game I know I'm going to be going back to soon, though, is Super Mario RPG. With the remake slash remaster coming out in November of 2023, we're just a few months away from getting to experience it. I want to go back to the original and talk about it before I see how the new one stacks up, so look for that one coming soon. Beyond that, I'm just trying my best to commit time to the show as well as some projects over on our YouTube channel. Thank you all again for your continued patience with me as I slowly churn out content. Life for me is moving at a breakneck pace and sometimes I feel like I'm just struggling to stay above water, but it's all worth it when I can put something out that I'm proud of and I can put something out that you all enjoy. Your continued support means the world to me. So with that said, I hope I get to see you again soon for when we take our expedition back into the gaming wildlands. There's so much more to see and many more stories to be told. Until then, my friends, my name is Nomad, and you can find me roaming the retro wildlands. <laughs>